0: he already had this idea that maybe we could view cancer as a kind of an adversary, uh, uh, as a way to to conceptualize new ways of treating cancer. Because one of the concerns he he had uh, and still has is that uh, when we discuss treatment of cancer um, and, and development of new methods of treating cancer, maybe we need to also think about cancer in, in new ways, to, to be able to leverage all these developments in, uh, and that are going on right now in, in genetics and pre- precision oncology.
1: This month, Dr. Tony Ingesen joins the podcast. Dr. Ingesson is the Associate Professor of Intelligence Analysis at Lund University in Sweden. He's a trained munitions remover and naval patrol leader. His thesis is mainly focused around subcultures, military, decision making, and administration. Since 2016, he has primarily conducted research in subjects related to intelligence analysis and decision-making. Recently, Dr. Singh collaborated with medical professionals to study how intelligence analysis can be used to defeat cancer.
0: We hope you enjoy this episode. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: Well, welcome, Tony Ingeson, to the podcast. Thank you for showing up, Tony.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Uh, this is going to be an excellent conversation. Uh, but before we begin, I would like to give you a few minutes to just, uh, you know, give a background on yourself, who you are, promote anything you'd like um, to promote. And then we could, we could start talking about, uh, about intelligence analysis, something I'm very passionate about.
0: All right. Uh, so I'm an assistant professor uh, of intelligence analysis at Lund University in Sweden. Uh, and I have a PhD uh, in political science uh, and I wrote my dissertation originally on uh, tactical decision-making in combat situations um, where I studied uh, quite a few cases. I had eight case studies in all, um, ranging from submarines in World War I, uh, World War II, sorry, uh, including uh, American submarines, first year of combat operations uh, against, uh, against Japan uh and some other stuff and it's it's out there it's uh it's open access it's available for free as a pdf file if okay so if anyone is interested in that kind of thing you can read it for free um and then after that some sometime after after getting my phd i switched over to intelligence analysis and that's what i've been doing most of the time since then and uh Quite a lot of the stuff I've been I've been putting out there is uh, including the peer-reviewed research stuff is is open access so again you can, you can find it you can read it if you're interested um, and I've been studying uh, mostly stuff like counterintelligence uh, but also industrial espionage and methods uh, that kind of thing uh, I like I like pretty hands-on kind of stuff I like tradecraft I like things that you can find uh, in in archives and sometimes also more contemporary sources but you know hands-on stuff concrete stuff not so much the the, the more abstract things I, I like this i like the stuff that you, that that's exciting um yeah. basically yeah. and before yeah. before i before i went to academia I, I should mention maybe that i also have a background in the swedish armed forces uh, i was originally in the air force volunteers then i served uh, in the army and then ud unit uh, then I was recruited into the air force where I was an analyst on air launched munitions. Uh, and then, uh, I had kind of a hiatus from, from the military, uh, went to study uh, here in Lund and, uh, worked private sector for a while. Then I went back to the armed forces. So I've, I've also worked in the Navy. So it's kind of funny. I worked in, in, in <laughs> army, air force and Navy, uh, just pure coincidence. Uh, but then I left the Navy uh, to pursue uh, my PhD here in London. I've been here ever since.
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's an incredible career. And I don't know if you guys in Sweden do the same thing, but like, there's this sort of camaraderie, some army that I was just in the army, but I've done, you know, joint forces with like special operations and things like that. Um, but whatever service you were in, you're, there's a lot of camaraderie, so then you make fun of a, of the other services. You know, the Air Force, <laughs> we call it the Chair Force. You know, it's just yeah, sitting yeah. around not doing anything. And then we have comments about the Navy and the Marines, and it's all and all vice versa. Is that something in in Sweden that you guys do?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, and, and that's one of the advantages of having served uh, in all three branches is that I can make fun of the other ones uh, <laughs> yeah. without without being you know uh, being too uh, offensive. Of course, I mean, I spent a very short time in the Navy. Uh, It was just, I mean, it wasn't even a year. And I was sitting in a bunker uh, underground, so I wasn't even on a ship. So I'm not sure it actually counts, but (laughs) (laughs) technically (laughs) technically, I was in the Navy for a while.
1: Um, (laughs) That's that's incredible. Well, uh, I know I wanted to get you on here, and uh, and and I'm just so grateful that, that you did come on because... I wanted to talk about a tweet that you put out recently about, uh, and then, you know, correct anything that I'm saying that's wrong, but it's a, a peer reviewed paper on using intelligence analysis to fight an adversary, and that adversary is cancer.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a good summary. Yeah. Okay.
1: How so, did that start?
0: Um, well, it started uh, uh, my co author uh, on this thing, David Giselson Nord. Uh, He's a professor. Uh, At the division of clinical genetics here in lund uh he's also uh, a senior consultant pathologist Uh, so he he, his experience of of cancer is both uh, as a researcher but also as a doctor who actually treats cancer and he specialized also in childhood cancer and so he came to me because he had this embryo of an idea uh, where he wanted to talk about strategy and and maybe uh, uh, intelligence, I think, um, uh, and how that could be applied to cancer because he already had this idea that maybe we could view cancer as a kind of an adversary, uh, uh, as a way to to con- conceptualize new ways of treating cancer because one of the concerns he, he had uh, and still has is that uh, it, it's... It, when we discuss treatment of cancer um, and and development of new methods of treating cancer, maybe we need to also think about cancer in, in new ways to to be able to leverage all these developments in uh, and that are going on right now in, in genetics and pre- precision oncology. Uh, and I, you have to be a bit careful now when I'm presenting this because I'm I'm not the medical guy here, so right. I, I'm, I'm I'm trying as best as I, as I can, but I might get some details wrong um but uh this is basically my my way of, of interpreting all this and so we had these discussions and he explained to me how cancer works uh and and the problems that arise when you try to treat it so one of the ideas here is that cancer reacts to treatment basically so cancer doesn't have a consciousness So cancer is not an intelligent adversary in any way. It it, it, it has no agency kind of, uh, it it just reacts to things. But the way it reacts to things uh, is also one of the things that makes it so challenging. So one of the things I learned from David was that cancer is not this one thing that you have in your body. It's actually something he called a clonal landscape. So uh, when you have cancer, you typically will have several different kinds of cells uh, and these cells may compete with each other uh, because they they just want to grow, and there's a limited uh, limited uh, amount of resources they can they can use to grow, and there's limited space and all that. And sooner or later, I mean, they're going to kill the host. Um, but they compete, and and his idea was that maybe we could exploit this uh, th- this this way that cancer works because traditionally. Uh, in, in these clonal landscapes that you have in a tumor, for example, there might have been one kind of cell that is vulnerable to whatever treatment we have, chemical treatment, uh, chemotherapy. And, and there might be another kind of cell that isn't vulnerable, that is uh, already uh, uh, resistant to this kind of treatment. And then when you, and when you uh, apply the treatment, one, the, the first kind of cell it just dies off, basically. But then you're you're left with the other kind, uh, and now it the competition is gone, and this will just keep multiplying, and it's not it's not vulnerable to this kind of chemotherapy, and maybe it's not vulnerable to anything, and then it will kill the host, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe we just have to ramp up the treatment, but at some point the treatment is just becomes too toxic and too challenging for the body of the host, and then the treatment will kill the host instead. So he, he explained it this way to me, and and what I was, my contribution to this was that we could think about this in terms of asymmetric warfare, because it's, I mean, the can, we're not cancer that's fighting cancer. So we are asymmetric in the sense that cancer is something completely different from what we are. Uh, so the cancer is dependent on the human body as a host, but the body is not dependent on the cancer, for example. that That's one of the... Right, it's um, kind of like
1: counter... To that, you know, the body is, uh, yeah, yeah. So is it's, depleted by cancer.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, but it also, it come, it, it's not an external thing, it comes from the body, but it becomes like an external thing. Um, but so, one of the things we discussed was that uh, I introduced to him the concept of reflexive control, uh, which oh, is wow. something I've picked up from studying primarily Soviet um, counterintelligence methods. Uh, and I was always very fascinated by this. Uh, and I don't think it's I don't think we should regard reflexive control as this specifically like Russian or Soviet thing, uh, because I think basically one one of one of my ideas that I've I've had for some time uh, uh, and tried to express in different ways is that uh, I think the Soviets what the Soviets did uh, when they codified reflexive control as a theory was that they just picked up on these very general principles for manipulation and deception, uh, and and I think they they made a lot of good work on developing these and clarifying them in ways that you can, you can, you can keep them very concise and you can apply them. Uh, but I don't think they're like this specific thing because I think they exist, they have existed for a long time in the West as well, but just we maybe have been using it more intuitively and maybe not codifying it. And that makes it more difficult to transfer this kind of knowledge, Whereas right. I think that the the main advantage of using reflexive control as, as a framework here, theoretically is that it's it's like it's clearly formulated in all, in these old Soviet doctrines. So I talked I, I talked to David about reflexive control, and I said that reflexive control is basically about trying to get your adversary to do something that benefits you without them realizing it. You 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 make them position themselves in a way that you can exploit uh, right. in order to destroy them. Um, so this is something we we were working on, uh, and so. One of the ways that this can be done in cancer treatment is that uh, if we use this, this example I told you before, when we have two different kinds of cells, one is vulnerable to, uh, to a kind of treatment we have and the other kind of cell isn't. Well, then maybe we enrich the environment for the first kind, the one that is vulnerable. But instead of striking against it, we let it uh, exist and we actually maybe stimulate its growth, which is very counterintuitive in a, in a right. cancer treatment <laughs> yeah. context. It's but, gonna be
1: a tough cell to a patient. Yeah, yeah, it increase might be. It. But,
0: but the the thing is that we want this first kind of cell to outcompete the other one. So if if it works, then the first kind of cell might replace the second one, uh, to the point where the second one is is so is so weakened or maybe even uh, destroyed uh, in the process that we create this situation where we can strike the the this growing the first kind of cell. With a treatment and just wipe it out, or at least reduce it to the point where it can be surgically removed, uh, or, or treated with some other kind of method. But so the thing is that we we try to like trick the cancer in a way um, into into a position where we can strike at it more effectively, and this requires strategic thinking, basically. You have you have to think about cancer as an adversary, and you have to think several steps into the future, uh, like playing chess or something like that. And and this, from from what I can, uh, from what I have gathered from talking to David, this is not something that is has been done traditionally in in, in this kind of medical context because they have been more focused on the here and now, uh, short term, and just you know evaluating what works and what doesn't work, but not thinking several steps ahead like this.
1: Yeah, and, and so, well, that's such the, the great thing about intelligence analysis is you have to think outside the box in order to complete something. You you, you know, if you want to uh, attack the adversary and defeat the adversary, you've got to not only think like the adversary, but think outside of the box. Do do something that they would never expect. And that's why I think it's so interesting with what you're doing with cancer. You guys going through like an F3EA process, like the fine, fix, finish, exploit, yeah, animals. yeah, that's
0: that's that's another part of it. So we have several components uh, in this paper. So reflexive control is one of them, and this like uh, the uh, F thread uh, yeah. concept. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I mean, the acronym is is. is and it keeps
1: changing. I mean, yeah, yeah. I've like, seen they all, like they always do now and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but. yeah. Um, I like I just, to stick with the with what you said like the F thread or the F3. I, I just find
0: that that's easy one easy one to pronounce instead of just Right. A, <laughs> they'll probably add letters uh, uh, along the way. Oh. But, so but but yeah. the thing is so um, that's also another thing that that David brought into the mix was that he wanted to uh, get cancer treatment to be more focused on on this kind of uh, cyclical process. So normally you would you would find the cancer of course fix it uh like in the sense of here locating where it is and and you know how much it has spread and so on uh and and of course then you want to engage the cancer and and, and destroy it with whatever kind of treatment you're you're using but and so far i mean there's no major difference but uh he wanted to pick up on the f thread logic by also adding that after treatment uh the the treating doctor should should also try to immediately, or I mean, quickly try to get an, an, an updated um, picture of what's going on, uh, and get more more data on, on the way that the treatment has worked, and and more data on like the the kind of of the cells of the cancer that may re, may be still around, uh, and so that we can exploit this this information mm-hmm. and prepare for another round of treatment before. Uh, you get into the situation where this, with the patient has already started to deteriorate. Right. So he wanted to be more proactive and more like have this cyclical process spin or spinning uh, all the time until the until the patient has been cured. Instead of being because his, his the way he explained it to me is that cancer treatment has been very reactive uh, mm-hmm. and not so much proactive. Once you initiate treatment, you're both basically the cancer is reacting and then you're reacting to the cancer. And this is. Uh, maybe you can even use the OODA loop kind of uh, uh, metaphor here—that you want to keep acting, uh, uh, taking steps to destroy the cancer without waiting for it to react to you all the time. Right.
1: Yeah, it's uh, that—that's incredible. Is there any? Have you guys looked into any like AI or machine learning to? You know, uh, I, I kind of done, do the analysis I, portion of it.
0: Yeah, I haven't done so specifically because we started this a uh, couple of years ago, uh, so before like the the really big AI hype. Um, but I know that uh, David has uh, he has a, an entire team of people uh, mm-hmm. doing research on cancer, and I, I, I'd be surprised, frankly, if they haven't started to really uh, already. Uh, check out this kind of a venue because I know that they have been working on things like game theory before and stuff like that. So right. I know they're pretty quick to pick up on new ideas. Uh, but I think that might be a possibility. Sure.
1: Yeah. Now you said he came to you to, to talk through it and be yeah. sort of like the, the, the subject matter expert for yeah, how yeah. intelligence could do it. What was that conversation like?
0: Uh, it was very, very stimulating because I mean, when you're working with intelligence studies, you may, I mean, Maybe you're used to talking to people in law enforcement or military mm-hmm. or, you know, fellow academics who might be in political science or sociology or psychology or something like that. So, I mean, that, that that kind of, that kind of, those kinds of discussions are something that I'm fairly used to. But this was completely different talking to someone who comes from medicine and talks about cancer. Because, I, I mean, I, I knew very little about cancer, um, like most people, I guess. Um, and, and he had, he had some idea about what he wanted to know. Um, so he knew more about strategy than I knew about cancer. But I was able to also introduce some of the more uh detailed stuff like reflexive control and, yeah. and the asymmetric dimension. And so we had we had a lot of great meetings where we would just sit around and he would he would just explain cancer and I would explain some intelligence concept and then we would see kind of how we could connect the dots and how we could make these things work together. And I would pick up on whatever he was saying and say, "Oh, this reminds me of this thing." And he would, when I explained something, he would say, "Oh, that that that's like this thing." And so it was a really creative process. Uh, really, uh, really enjoyed it a lot.
1: Yeah, that sounds. I mean, it sounds amazing because I know if, if an oncologist or something would come up to me and and have asked me the same thing, I don't. I probably I don't have a PhD, so <laughs> not somebody like in the Intel world that is. Uh, you know, super knowledgeable. I've just been doing it for so long. I've got all these tidbits. But if some, if an oncologist would come up and ask, I don't know what I would say. I don't know if I would have the confidence that you had to say, yeah, let's go through this. Let's, uh, let's kind of combine our powers. Um, were there any books that helped you in um, the process?
0: N- not, not, I mean, not directly, indirectly, I think, uh, is, is more of the thing here. So, um, one of the things we got from a reviewer actually um, was uh, Ed Lotwak's uh, book on strategy. Yeah. Uh, not not so much the details, but just the uh, just the idea of framing it as this counterintuitive strategy. The paradox that what what Luttworth calls the, the paradoxical logic of strategy. I think something like that he calls it. Uh, so that was just one of the ways of framing it. Um, but otherwise, I think it's it came more out of uh, studies of, of, of a lot of it was soviet counterintelligence doctrine and mm-hmm. methods and cases because that, that's the kind of thing that i'm most familiar with david also had uh he he, he already, already knew about f-thread and he had some ideas about counterinsurgency and he had some ideas about strategy um so my contribution was to say that i don't, I don't think we should i don't think it, it it's that rewarding or, or productive to, to look at it as counterinsurgency, I think, but I think it's more like this adversarial uh, perspective where we use, um, reflexive control and more like look at it, like from this counterintelligence, uh, point of view. So, uh, um, I think that that was, that was my main contribution to this.
1: And what I really love about this is, especially, you know, for over the last few years, in, at least in the United States, and, and you could tell me how it is in Sweden, sort of this intelligence analysis gets dumped in with covert operations and, and the three-letter agencies, NSA, CIA, um, and, and it's looked down upon. You know, If you're doing intelligence, you're doing something covert. You're, you're part of the deep state. You're trying to do something negative towards the people. And then open source intelligence takes off. As, you know, gearing up, the Russians are gearing up on the border of Ukraine and open source intelligence now becomes a a vernacular within the English language. And there was a lot of, um, I would say, bad thoughts from some people who didn't understand it, that you're just trying to control a narrative. You're you're trying to control this. So so what I really love about the study is it's something tangible that you can attack, that, that you can do good work in and maybe highlight other things that intelligence analysis can do good work within the community. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: Yeah, I think, and this is this points to an actually uh, a very interesting cultural difference, the which is something I'm actually, uh, I'm working on in another project right now, but it's, it's going to take a while until that's finished, but it's probably going to be a book chapter. Uh, but, I've, I've studied uh, U.S. counterintelligence, especially in the 80s uh, quite a bit, uh, also to some extent uh, in the U.K., but mostly uh, counterintelligence in the U.S. Uh, and and I've also studied uh, counterintelligence in Sweden uh, in the same time period. Um, and I think it's it, 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 it's very interesting. And also, I mean, just what you, what you pick up in, in general in terms of attitudes from society and such that... I mean, in, in the US, intelligence. Um, my impression is that intelligence is very strongly associated with foreign intelligence, intelligence mm-hmm. gathering on other countries in particular. And I mean, and w- with that, I think yes, it, it's not that far off to to associate it with covert action. Yeah. Whereas in Sweden, intelligence has historically uh, not been all that strongly associated with foreign intelligence, but but very strongly associated with with counterintelligence because. We've had the Soviets and the Russians uh, just next door for, for I mean, yeah. for a long time, and, and most of that time we haven't exactly been getting along all that well. So we've had this intelligence threat from the Russians and the Soviets and then the Russians again, uh, and, and we've always had to cope with that. Uh, and in the eighties, for example, uh, intelligence work in this country was to a very large extent serving the interests of counterintelligence. And that also, I think, has has had the uh, the effect of making intelligence work more accepted in Sweden. Uh, so here in Sweden, I think people in general are not—they don't have that kind of negative attitude. To some extent, it has. There's been a, a bit of change. So after after uh, Snowden and and all that, um, yeah, yeah some, that was a huge one. Yeah, yeah. So signals intelligence here. Uh, yeah. Got caught up in that, for example, uh, got a bad rap from that. Um, but I think that that has kind of quieted down a lot uh, in the recent in recent years. And now I think that we're still at this point where um, people have a lot of trust here in in uh, in, in the security service, for example, and they are one of the intelligence part of the intelligence community here. And then we have our signals intelligence agency, which also, I mean, has, I mean, it, it, I, I don't know exactly. I haven't I haven't got uh, solid data on exactly how people perceive it but I, I I'm getting the impression that it's not it's more nuanced probably it's not all right. negative because again it's people associate intelligence with protection of the, of the state and protection of the people here more yeah. I think than they do in the US.
1: Yeah, I do and and I think that within the US there is sort of this um I would say con- the, there's a lack of confidence in the intelligence community within the U.S. because of some some of the things that have come out. One of Snowden coming out and um, and highlighting what the NSA was doing. Um, and the a lot what I hear from a lot of people is that you know with the American people, so well we've been lied to for so long, you know, and and so the more covert an intelligence action is, you know, signals intelligence, one of our highest levels of classification that that you have, just because of how uh, we capture things within signals intelligence. And so it has to be very covert. And so when it does come out and people, I would say, don't understand it and then realize that what they were being told wasn't the whole story, they lose confidence in that, in that organization. But I would think that Sweden must do a much better job, of like, highlighting what the intelligence community is doing for the people there.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, to some extent, I think it doesn't need to be highlighted uh, that much because the threat from from Russia is is kind of obvious to, to yeah. most people. So you don't have to remind people of it because it's always at the back of people's minds, I think. Um, and it has been for such a long time. I mean, we a lot of people forget, but even here, ironically, but... Uh, for for quite quite a long time, Sweden was a very militarized country, uh, kind of a, a bit like Israel uh, in this in the during sixties and seventies during that uh, in that sense. But not quite not not that far. But we had I mean uh, we had conscription, uh, which we still do. Uh, we had, it was suspended for a while, but it was reintroduced again. Uh, and we had also we had. F- pretty significant spending on 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 the armed forces uh i mean we had uh, a pretty significant air force uh, at one point yeah. our air force was i think like uh, the fourth largest and most capable in the world um and we built a lot of stuff domestically invested a lot of money in that built fortresses uh, fortifications uh, coastal uh, artillery batteries uh, airfields and one of the things that I remember from, uh, and this is something I also studied uh, when I when I did my PhD was that I think that the view of war in Sweden has also been very different from the view of war in the US because the, the traditional like Cold War view of war here was that war would come to us and be fought right. on our soil and, and that would be extremely destructive. We were kind of it was always assumed that we would suffer terrible losses. We'd probably suffer a partial or complete breakdown of command and control. Uh, cities would be bombed. Civilians would be killed on mass. We would su- suffer mass mass casualty events. And the purpose of of training people was to ensure that they would keep on fighting. And it was like part of the doctrine was that the country will never issue a general surrender. And if someone tells you that they are lying, so you will <laughs> never you you, you, would, you would it would cons- it would considered treason. To surrender unless you are rendered combat ineffective so if we're wounded or you're out of ammunition or whatever then fine you can surrender but you may never surrender otherwise you will have, even if you're just like one company left uh, of the entire army you're just expected to fight until you're rendered combat ineffective or killed basically um and i think this mindset this kind of like uh, besieged mindset or pretend, just one step or removed from being besieged by the Russians and Soviets. Because, I mean, they have such vast numbers and they have like a lot of hardware and it's close. It doesn't take long for them to, to get to us. I think this also means that people accepted secrecy and, and intelligence in the service of protecting the country. Uh, because I think the, the, the perceived threat was always uh, closer at hand, I think, not just nuclear war, but just conventional invasion.
1: Yeah, I, it's not even like you say. It's just not even just nuclear war. It's you know getting your conventional munitions downrange yeah. and killing civilians, and and that would happen um, in a invasion of Russia. That's what we're watching in Ukraine right yeah, now. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. I think I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is, is kind of vindicates the 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 view that people had here. That that that's exactly what people expected, and that's exactly what happened.
1: Yeah, there. So we know. Russia is is kings of misinformation and disinformation. Is that coming through in Sweden at all? or are they getting any like in in media or anything like that?
0: Yeah, I mean they have some I mean they're always there's always going to be some people who are going to uh, well, be sympathetic to Russia uh, to some extent. But my impression is that they it's been tougher for them uh, to to employ misinformation, uh, and disinformation in Sweden. Uh, for example, they had, they tried to, um, establish a, a local media presence some years ago, back when they, they were gay, having more success with their, with this kind of thing. I, but it didn't work at all. Uh, it didn't work here. So they had to pretty much roll that back and, and, and cease those operations because it did, simply didn't work. Uh, and I think, and they, they like to accuse us of being very Russophobic. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's, I think people here have more, again, I think it is also connected to all the things I mentioned before about this long-standing like, I don't know, uh, hostility towards Russia uh, uh, is that people are generally quite skeptical of what the Russians say and do. Then some people, I mean, they're just going to try to be, Know, both citing it or whatever or trying to but but uh, I mean after the invasion of Ukraine I think it's it's been very very they they, they lost a lot of, of the, even the like these the few people who were willing to defend them I think had to tone it down a lot because you can't really say that kind of thing here anymore yeah
1: so do you think that was like that was a miscalculation because uh, I mean and I, I've been talking about this for a while that putin has said it himself the the next you know he wants the ussr back to what it was he he spoke about finland he's spoken about sweden um, by name
0: yeah. saying
1: that they should be coming back into into russia um, so did he make a miscalculation going into ukraine
0: oh yeah i think we can okay. <laughs> i i I think, I think we can that's one of the few things i think we can say for sure there was uh, I, I I think that this uh, this this invasion this the full scale one. I mean, they have already been engaged in,
1: in. Right, that's an important note. You know, they've yeah, been at war but, with Ukraine for a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, at least since 2014. Um, right. But but if we the the the, tw- the 2022 uh, full scale invasion, I think is going to go down in history as one of these really major intelligence and decision-making blunders. Uh, I mean, it it might even replace at some point uh, the Yom Kippur War of 73, which is the kind of thing, like standard scenario we use in teaching, like intelligence failures uh, and decision-making failures. And I think, but but of course, the only problem I see with using it as that is that they're probably not going to be very... uh, Open with with the kind of information uh, right. <laughs> and background that we would need, but I think it's, it's it's safe to say I think that this was one of the worst intelligence failures of, of all time, probably. Yeah.
1: Why do you think that was? You know what what well, went that, on?
0: That, I, that's an interesting interesting thing, uh, interesting question. I think I, I mean it's it's kind of speculative; it's very difficult to answer. But I get the impression that um, probably had the classic problem of having people who have been agreeing with each other for too long. And uh, they all try to appease and, and please Putin as much as possible. And if if they think that this is what Putin wants to hear, then that's what they're going to say. And vice versa. If they think that Putin doesn't want to hear this, uh, then, then I'm not going to be the one to tell him, Uh, or maybe I'm going to tone it down and and wash it a bit and make it look better. And, and, you know, politicization of, of intelligence and all that but also i think it's it's quite possible that maybe um the fsb uh should be seen as as one of the major players in this that the fsb has never i've never had the impression that the fsb was particularly competent uh, at, at doing qualified intelligence work um less so than than either of the other two ones right and and i think the more responsibility you put on the fsb the, the greater the risk uh, of, of something like this happening um but of course, it, it might 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 just as well also be that the other two, uh, the GRU and and SVR, that they also played a role in this. Um, but it's it's I mean it's it's a bit frustrating because it's very difficult to to uh, to to look behind the scenes here and see what went wrong. But I think it's safe to, to safe to assume that they thought that things were very different and that things would play out very differently, and that I think that was based to a very large extent on a. Very erroneous uh, view of of what Ukraine was uh, and and how it re- Ukraine would react.
1: Yeah, and I I definitely agree with that. And and I think it's very interesting what you brought up because um, I I will agree with the fact that I think the failures came from, and it, and it happens in the United States. So within the intelligence community here, we have everything's based off of your customer. So if you're disseminating a report at the end of the day. It's for a specific entity or person. Well, for a lot of our in- intelligence community, that's the President of the United States. And so that's the person who's going to guide your intelligence collection. It's going to guide you know up to even what the that person wants to hear and what they don't want to hear. And so we in the US have had a, a ton of intelligence failures because of that simple fact that well this isn't something the president wanted to hear so let's not let's not look into that or discuss that um did, what is the concept within Sweden as far as the intelligence community you know who do who's their customer who do they go to
0: well i mean it's it's somewhat ironically uh it's very secretive uh, in Sweden once you get past like the lower levels of, mm-hmm. of, of stuff like law enforcement intelligence and such it gets pretty quickly it gets quite intransparent and Thing about Another ironic thing here, uh, which I th- also find very fascinating, is that Sweden is, is, I mean, legally, we have a lot of transparency built into our system. So, I mean, the default for all public kind of documents and decisions is that they must be made public and that anyone can request uh, and get uh, quickly, uh, any basically any kind of file, except the classified stuff. But right. the classified stuff, on the other hand, is really classified. So <laughs> okay. people, stuff does not get declassified easily here, uh, and the, uh, stuff can stay classified for a very long time, even if there's a scandal or something like that. So one of the reasons I've done so much work on, on American counterintelligence and American cases is because once there's a scandal, I know that well, there's going to be some some stuff released and there's going to be like uh, congressional oversight is going to kick in and I'm going to get all these nice reports. I mean, they're not going to give me all the details, but they're going to give me a lot of information. That doesn't happen right. here. It doesn't exist here. You can okay. have, at some point you can have, if, if, if something bad happens, and I mean, we've had our fair share of stuff, bad stuff as well. Uh, then you might have a similar mechanism where someone uh, investigates and then they uh, publish a report. But usually they're going to be a lot less detailed, and then they're going to have this classified appendix that you can't see, and that's that's where they're going to put all the useful stuff. Uh, uh, So it's it's just a more closed system, Uh, and and I think uh, which also I think uh, is a result of this uh, long-term hostility and long-term threat from Russia and before the Soviet Union that secrets are kept uh, and they're kept for a long time and. Once something is has been deemed important enough to be secret, it stays the secret, basically. So we have had uh we had maybe you heard about the um uh, criminal case against we had a, a spy inside the intelligence community here. Well, yeah. Uh and he was assisted by his brother. And uh a lot of the trial a lot of the trial was kept classified. Uh a lot of the evidence, uh witnesses, etc., was was classified. And I don't think that's gonna be released. Probably in, <laughs> anytime soon. Uh, I mean, that's going to probably take a, l- a very long time. Uh, so uh, the public only received uh, some some information, but even then, uh, it was we received an unprecedented amount of information. We received a lot of information. Uh, a lot of the evidence was still made public, but that's because they they wanted to make it public just to be able to get him convicted and to gain support from the public for the for the conviction. Uh, but normally you don't get that. So the customers, to return to your question, I think the customers, of course, are, are the government. Uh, in this case, in our case, we have the prime minister and we have the ministers of government. And they're they're consumers uh, of intelligence. But then we also have like the security service. Uh, they have specifically the counterintelligence and counterterrorism parts. But also they have... Uh, uh, a, a, a part of them also work on uh, VIP protection, and then they also have protection of like the constitutional and democratic order of the country. Right. Uh, but they receive intelligence, and they can task intelligence um, to support their work. Uh, and then we have law enforcement. Is, of course, they have their own intelligence ca- capabilities, but they also have information sharing and such. So I usually tell my students that uh, it's important to note that intelligence exists on, on several different levels and serves different purposes, uh, and, uh, and they're all very important, but some, of course, are more secret and, than others. So in law enforcement, it, it's going to be become open a lot faster than, uh, than you would expect from national se- in a national security context.
1: Yeah. And that's a a good point to be made. So we have, you know, we have the same thing. So outside of the, I, outside of the intelligence community agencies, what we would call the three letter agencies, you know, we have an intelligence community that is actively involved in police in with police officers in policing, not on the ground policing, but helping the community understand what the adversaries are and, and then helping the police find other people. And like you said, that's less covert. Um, what, what are the kind of students that you're seeing now, or, or is it all, is it military people or are you seeing an influx of, um, regular students coming in? They want an, an intelligence degree.
0: It's, it's a mix I'd say. Um, and the courses we have in intelligence we have, so we have our system, uh, is such that in order to get like a bachelor's degree in something, you would take three full semesters uh, of classes in that specific topic. Uh, and then you would add uh, three semesters of something else. And then, and then you'd uh, typically you, the, the topic that you want your degree to be in is the one you would have to write a, a, a student thesis in. And that mm-hmm. would take you some weeks. Um, 10,000 words uh, thesis. Um, so we have students who take uh, all three of these courses uh, in sequence uh, so that they can get a, a, a bachelor's degree in intelligence analysis. So that means that they typically already have the other experience from other subjects and that, ki- that in some cases it's political science. some cases uh, it's criminology and uh, some cases it's even people who with engineering backgrounds and stuff like that. Some of them are just students. Uh, most of them are, I think, safe to assume looking for a career in intelligence. Some people are already working in law enforcement specifically or the military. Uh, and probably they are looking to apply for an intelligence position within the organization they're already employed. And they think that this might help leverage them and get improve their chances of getting a job like that. Um, and we have a lot of good cooperation with, with our intelligence community, so we're a small country, so our intelligence community is, I think, more closely knit and also somewhat broader in in in, in what they do. So we have we have meetings here in Lund for for our intelligence community practitioners, uh, including also private sector uh, representatives. Um, so we meet maybe I think is two between uh, three and four times a year well wow. uh we have uh, people typically they travel to learn from Stockholm and other places in the country and then we meet up uh around lunchtime uh, just after lunchtime and then we have like meetings all through the afternoon and evening and then the day after we pick it up again and then we have meetings until lunch and then we wrap it up and uh, these these are very very i think very productive meetings because we don't discuss operational stuff uh, nothing that would sensitive or require, no you know, like uh, information security or something like that. So we just discuss uh, stuff like research. Uh, so people come from, from our university and from other places and present their research uh, to practitioners. Practitioners talk more strategic issues with each other, with us. Uh, what's the direction uh, next 10 years, for example? What are important developments? Uh, what do we need to talk about with each other? Like long-term stuff, strategic stuff. Um, so uh, we have people from the military, we have people, uh, law enforcement, we have both like counterintelligence, but also traditional policing. We have customs, uh, we have prisons, uh, we have ta- ta- tax authority, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, they're actually, uh, people tend to overlook them, but at least here they, they have a pretty interesting niche in, in intelligence because they fi- they detect, uh, kind of financial crime, which is something you can use to finance organized crime or finance terrorism and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. I think uh, a lot of people, I I laugh because we have a different sense of, of the tax system between us and and you guys in Sweden. (laughs) We look uh, a lot. Well, I would say we we look down on taxes a lot more than, than you guys would. (laughs) And not to say who's right or wrong. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not a, I'm not a financial guy, but it's an interesting thing to bring up because yeah, you're, you're exactly right. If, when doing counterterrorism, you're basically looking at financials and, and you're following the money. That's the one thing we're always taught: if you want to figure something out, if you want to see who's the leader here, follow the money. Who's funding it, and and where is it funneling down to? Yeah, so it's so interesting that you guys have that with your with your tax agency.
0: Yeah, we we actually we have several agencies uh, tasked with like following the money and using intelligence to get more information on transactions and. Uh, money flows and stuff like that. Um, so we have the tax authority. Uh, we have a special, uh, I don't remember what the English translation is, but we have an agency that basically uh, collects debts uh, that people have uh, in the name of the government. Uh, they, they are also tasked with, for example, if someone has major outstanding debts because they're not paying taxes, uh, to, perhaps because they're an organized crime, uh, then they can confiscate... Uh, cars, watches, uh, cash, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, we also have a special, special, special agency separate one that handles uh, financial crime specifically. Okay. Um, and a funny also should mention that a funny uh, irony of this uh, when you talked about popularity of tax authorities <laughs> yeah. is that the tax authority in this country, even though we're quite heavily taxed, as most people know the tax authority is one of the most popular agencies. Most That's... they enjoy a huge amount of trust with the public, which is kind of <laughs> funny. Yeah.
1: This is I mean, I would I would love to sit down and, and talk to, you know, a just a group of diverse Swedish people, d- diverse Swedes, just to hear that because you don't hear it here in the US. I mean you you there are, you know, certain uh we, we've got forms within the government that would consider themselves democratic socialists that are very positive about, you know, the taxes, especially the tax system in Sweden. And, uh, but, but I would say the majority of people when tax season comes around, uh, it's, it's a very negative sort of thing. So it's just so, it's so interesting to hear that. Um, and so you're, are you guys, so you as a, so you said associate professor,
0: Assistant professor. Uh,
1: Yeah, as an assistant professor, are are you you're talking with you know the Intel community within the military and and other forms? Are you you have a say in in telling them what you're thinking may happen in the future? We're talking five ten years down the line. Hey, here's my here's my theory. Uh, Can we do an analysis of competing hypotheses on what could actually happen?
0: Well, basically, we, we have uh, yeah we have all these meetings, uh, and I sometimes I meet them you know on a more bilateral basis, uh, just me as well. So I participate in training uh, analysts and manage management people uh, in intelligence agencies here uh, in law enforcement specifically. Um, so I I mean I, they do most of their training themselves, but I kind of add my, my own perspectives to it. And I have some modules that I teach. Uh, so that's one way of, of getting, getting my perspectives. Uh, but also I, I talk to them when I have training, I'm, it's not like I show up and then lecture them and I walk out. It's more like I present my, this is, this is what, this is my take. Uh, and this is kind of what I pick up from research and from science and, what do you think about this, and how, in what, in what way is this useful to you? And then usually we have a bit of a discussion, and then I can pick up some lessons learned, and then I can use them and implement them, and and, and continue to evolve my teaching in this way. But also we have meetings, like I said, and and uh, it, it's 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 pretty informal. So we talk about stuff, and we usually talk in a group setting. So I'm I'm just one member of the group, and the group is typically uh, the majority of the group will be practitioners from the agencies, and then a bunch of us academics and we give our two cents and they give their, their two cents. And then sometimes we come up with new ideas together and sometimes we, new insights. And, and we don't always agree, obviously, but we, we we get an idea of what the others are thinking and what, what the others are worried about and what these kind of opportunities and uh, threats they see. And then we can keep each other's... Uh, we all, we're all kept up to date. And I think that's very valuable that we have this reoccurring uh, structure where we meet and and make sure that we are kind of keeping ourselves up to date on, on what everyone is thinking about.
1: So then I think we got uh, 15, 20 more minutes that, that we can talk. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, so then I think the, the final thing I'd like to discuss is what what is Sweden worried about over the next five years? And then uh, more to that, what are you focused on over the next five years?
0: Uh, I think what... <clears throat> what Sweden is worried about in the next five years is, well, Russia is always. <laughs> always, yeah. <laughs> always. Top con- of the list. <laughs> always, yeah, always a concern from a national security perspective. So Russian Russian intelligence activities, I mean, the one thing is national security in a very general sense that, you know, the military threat from Russia and what, what are they planning to do and what kind of capabilities do they have? That's always something to, to keep in mind, always something that we need to stay focused on and up to date on. <clears throat> but then we also have, of course, the intelligence threat Um we, uh, there's been an increased uh, indications I should say of an increased use of, of illegals and other kinds of people who do not operate under diplomatic cover um, so that's something to keep in mind in the, for the future um, when, when, when are they going to show up uh, in greater numbers and how are, are they going to construct their, their legends and cover stories and how, how are we going to detect them and so on but also organized crime is is a major issue in Sweden right now. Uh, we have uh, we're really struggling with with a lot of organized crime and how to use intelligence to fight it. Uh, and I think, from my point of view, I think it's very interesting to look at some of the American experiences uh, in, in fighting organized crime because I mean it's. Uh, it's, it's something that the U.S. has a lot more experience in doing and has done over uh, serial, several periods of time in different settings. And I think that to, all that adds up to a very interesting base of experience and cases that I've been looking at. And in some cases, there are a lot of things we can't do because our legislation won't allow it. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we should address and look at um, because not everything has to be uh, a trade-off between... Um, at least not as big a trade-off between public safety and you know personal integrity and that kind of thing sometimes uh, for example since i'm interested in deception and manipulation and that kind of thing i've been looking at uh, classic sting operations that the fbi have been using Uh, and i know that sting operations is a thing that is very difficult to do in, in sweden because the legislation wasn't designed for that kind of thing and and it just puts up a lot of obstacles, but I think, and I know that sometimes they've tried to run sting operations and I don't, I don't think, it, I mean, to some, there've been some results, but I think they could have been done a lot better, a lot more efficiently, although that might require some, some minor reforms in terms of legislation, but I don't think it would be that big of a trade-off. And I think that it, it could produce very interesting results. Um but I think that organized crime and Russia will probably remain major issues. Of course, then it's also stuff like climate change and and no pandemics. Uh, I don't do that much work on on those topics, but I know that the, from from like a broader intelligence community view, I think that pandemics and and climate change are also being going to be and AI, of course, also going to be right. stuff that's going to be on the radar.
1: Yeah, that's not something. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up. The the climate change factor? Because uh, the last few years, the United States has put out a, um, a national security briefing, um, and a, a greater intelligence briefing, and climate change has entered that uh, just because of the effects that could happen with, uh, you know, if the, if the world continues to warm, what what are we going to do? So that, do you see that as something that the, in, that the intelligence community can help out with? How do we defeat climate change? How do we um, how do we protect ourselves from whatever the risk may be? Rising seas, um, hurricanes, weather, all that all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, I, th- I mean, I think the um, <clears throat> intelligence community can contribute to it by highlight- highlighting stuff that is directly associated with societal risk and crisis management and crisis preparedness. And I think that, I mean, in, in a best case scenario, I think the intelligence community could help Possibly bridge some of the divide and polarization by presenting this is our view of the, of the real risks and what we should do to mitigate those risks and uh, how serious they are. Because uh, I think that in in a in this context, the intelligence community should be seen as as a more impartial kind of factor that doesn't have any. Uh, you know allegiance to to the to the science uh, to the people in science who are doing it. So you can't really accuse the Catalan community of, of 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 being partial. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I don't think that you should accuse science of being partial anyway. But I know that some people are <laughs> inevitably going to do that. Um, but even those people, I think, might find it more, at least, more difficult to pretend like the problem doesn't exist if if the intelligence community also presents the same picture so it might help convince more people and it might help add more perspective to to the issue i think
1: so is that does the intelligence community do that by writing it in a certain way or presenting the information in in a in a sort of way or just being completely open and honest about everything that's going on just open up all the books and say, hey, this is exactly what we're seeing. We're not going to put any classifications on it.
0: Um, yeah, I, I think that probably it's going to be easier to 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 discuss as an issue. I don't see how it would be as much, as associated with, with clandestine sources as a lot of traditional intelligence, because, I mean, this is not the kind of stuff you're going to get from... Uh, a source in the Kremlin who <laughs> tells you something <laughs> yeah. at a bar or whatever, or yeah. or, or like copies documents. So I'll, I mean, the advantage here is that I think the intelligence community can present views on this uh, in a in a quite a transparent manner because most of, I mean, pretty much all of this information is probably going to be open source. I mean, the only adva- the only exception I can come up with is if something is also supported by more covert sensors of some sort, and you might yeah I was thinking of that those. as well yeah so that might be one scenario, but of course, you, you 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 can always use traditional ways of dealing with that and saying that we can't give you um, all the inf- all the data we use for this conclusion because it might compromise some uh, covert sensors. But we agree with this estimate. For example, I think that yeah. that's still a valuable contribution if it comes because it comes from another source and one that has, you know, even if some people will probably think that. Continue to think that the intelligence community uh, has all these nefarious agendas and whatever, uh, and, and they'll probably try to read into this that the you know, whatever conspiracy theory they're they're having that the intelligence community is just going to be using climate change as a way to support whatever. Yeah, right. They
1: can't they show us the sensors or the radars yeah, because yeah, exactly. it's creating what's going on instead of yeah.
0: Just, so, but some people you're not going to be able to reach no matter what. Right. But maybe some other people who are more like on the fence, uh, maybe they think, oh is it really that serious? Maybe the scientists are exaggerating because they want funding. Maybe you can maybe those people are more receptive to it. Okay, so the intelligence community is also saying it and I trust them to be impartial in this. So I mean it's, it, it's not going to convince everyone, but I think for some people it it, it, might, be, uh, it might be a way of like reminding or, re- or, or opening up their their views uh, on this.
1: Yeah, I think that's the the better way to focus it. You know, I I was first the mindset for me was how do we convince everybody uh that something like something is anything that's divisive is actually important and it it could harm you. Um but like you said, it you don't have to convince everybody because you're not going to convince everybody. But if you can if you can get those people on the fence, if you can get, you know, the majority of people who are moderate thinking individuals to to rethink the whole situation. And it's not just climate change, it's everything. Everything that we discussed that we're so divisive about. Um, well, I like I said, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I do want to give you a few moments to just, you know, tell everybody where they can find you. And if you have anything that you're working on you would like to get out there, I'd love for you to just let our audience know.
0: Uh, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Tony Ingerson uh, in a single word, um, and uh, yeah, I'm guessing you're gonna get, you're gonna put my name in the title or somewhere. <laughs> oh <laughs> just, yeah, just yeah, it, and I'll it. put
1: your I'll put your Twitter into the uh, into the show notes, and I do tell everybody please go follow that. Uh, it's not just about the cancer research. Tony puts out some great, some really good analysis, especially the World War One and World War II stuff that you've been putting out recently. It's very fascinated by that.
0: Uh, Yeah, thank you. Uh, So if you look at my easiest way to get, uh, if you look at my Twitter, you can find I have a thread there, uh, like a pinned thread, where you can find uh, links to my open access stuff, including my PhD dissertation. And if you don't use Twitter, you can uh, pretty much Google my name. uh, And I think you're going to find my like my university uh uh portal webpage, where you can find also links to the stuff i've been producing and like i said most of it uh, a lot of it uh, at least is is open access and it's not like you don't have to register or anything because my university has paid a lot of money to make it open access so <laughs> you should really uh really uh make the most of it and just if you're if you're interested you can you can read all of that stuff uh exactly as it was written and published
1: yeah, that's awesome. And, and I do appreciate all that because it's transparency and just getting it out you know, to the public. If you want to read it, go ahead. I, I I highly recommend reading it. Tony, thank you so much again for coming on. I, this is a wonderful conversation. I can't wait you know, to see that peer-reviewed paper out and, and we can start fighting cancer with intelligence analysis.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, I had a great time.
1: All right. Thank you, man